0: Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen bottom of the week edition, because I was traveling on Wednesday and Charles was traveling on Thursday. I was in Austin for a bit and you are out in Las Vegas. What's going on out there besides the usual Las Vegas stuff, which I'm sure you're completely forswearing. Well, I
1: am not forswearing it. Uh, I'm, I'm not a gambler, but I did last night go to see the Beatles love show, the Cirque du Soleil show.
0: Oh, how is that? I've never I've never seen it. Oh, it was terrific. I mean, it was okay. absolute
1: sensory overload. But the thing is, even if it hadn't been terrific, I would have just been happy to sit and listen to those songs <laughs> played at that volume. <laughs> it was
0: just now, was uh, physically... This, um, was this a show being done with musicians playing Beatles song or, songs or was it recordings of Beatles songs and some sort of show being done over it?
1: It's the latter. So a few years ago, Giles Martin, who's George Martin's son, uh, and essentially has taken over the role as audio custodian of the Beatles uh, since his father died, got together with uh, George Martin and got hold of all of the original Beatles tapes and remastered a bunch of them and then mashed them together, as the kids say. So, uh, the soundtrack is this sort of kaleidoscope of Beatles songs that have been mixed together and reworked, and one song put over another, and pitched and time shifting. It's really remarkable. I've actually had that album for pff, 16 years,
0: <laughs> but I've never seen I the show. i about that once. Uh, yeah, we, we, had, may have we done. had some Love reason to physical. talk about Giles Martin. I forget what it was. He maybe did he? Uh, he produced maybe uh, was it a Julian Lennon record a couple of years ago? We were talking about anyway. I can't remember. Well,
1: back. we probably were talking about his work remixing and mastering the Beatles, and that probably he did. That was your kid, yeah. He did Sergeant Pepper and then the White Album and then Abbey Road, uh, and I think the new Let It Be as well. Um, but yeah, I've had this. <laughs> this record for years, but I've never seen the show, so I've now remedied it.
0: So, you you recommend for uh Vegas Tourist? Oh,
1: absolutely, absolutely go see it. It's uh, I mean, it's it's Cirque du Soleil, but filtered through the Beatles. So, if you like either of those things, you're gonna have a good time.
0: Oh, sounds like uh, fun ish. Uh, I'm not a huge Cirque du Soleil kind of guy, I think. I, I sort of hmm it's weird because I generally kind of like empty spectacle. Uh, I'm okay with that. I just sort of, uh, you know, enjoy being entertained that way. But um, having lived in Las Vegas, of course, I've, I've found myself obliged to go to a number of Cirque Soleil shows and uh, I didn't hate them or anything. I just didn't really, uh, didn't, um, didn't push my there's buttons. There's so many of them here. Yeah. There's I like couldn't believe it. Uh, they've got a whole lot uh, going on there. Yeah, Vegas is interesting that way because um I mean we talked about Vegas, I know some some before, but um it's uh it's it's been interesting to watch them diversify, you know, where um whereas maybe even as recently as 25 years ago or 20 years ago, the casinos and casino hotels were pretty much the only thing going on in Vegas. I mean there were some shows and stuff. But basically you went to Vegas to drink and gamble and uh and mostly to Drink and gamble. But um with the uh just sort of increase in general tourism there, you've got a lot of people who are not so mentioned in drinking and a surprising number of people who just don't gamble who visit Las Vegas for various other reasons. Yeah, so I you don't know gamble go there for shows and stuff, people uh people People go there to. I guess shopping is sort of a thing for particularly some international visitors to uh, Las Vegas and that kind of thing. You don't gamble at all.
1: I mean, I'm not opposed to it, and and I I'm a member of certain you know football pick'em leagues or what you will. Um, but I I just don't do that. I've I've never got into it. Um, I mean, I I've,
0: we don't need to rehearse suppose... this whole thing, but. Um... I'm glad Las Vegas is there. I like Las Vegas and I like to play poker every now and then, although I'm not a very good poker player. But I don't want there to be casino gambling anywhere in the United States except for Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, only no, only I Las Vegas thing.
1: So yeah. I would I would be much more tempted to say bet on sports and have some drinks and watch a horse race or a football game and bet on yeah. it. I just I just think that if I went down to play cards of any sort i, w- I would lose badly <laughs> there would be
0: no pleasure in it for me yeah um yeah you need to be at the kitty table uh tell you uh, tell you figure it out you and i should probably go through the kitty table when it comes to yeah <laughs> and i'm not not very good at it but i'm not good at games in general like, i'm not good at chess um i'm not very good at card games i'm not good at scrabble do you think i'd be good at scrabble because it's kind of word oriented although it's really more about spatial reasoning i think uh which is not a particularly strong suit of mine So, uh, yeah, a couple of thoughts about Vegas uh, since we're on the subject of Las Vegas. Um, As you know, I think very highly of the city. I think it's a good place to live. I think it gives you sort of 90 percent of what you want out of Southern California without Southern California stuff, you know, without California taxes, prices, regulation, anti-gun stuff, general invasiveness of living in uh, California. In fact, when I moved to Las Vegas, I was originally going to move to Southern California. And I decided that Vegas was as close as I could get and um, sort of find it tolerable and reasonable. Um, But Vegas is going to be, I think, kind of on maybe the leading edge of um, certain Americans starting to think maybe differently and a little more seriously about certain environmental issues. You know, so Vegas is is a booming city. It's been growing quite a bit. Uh, Henderson, Nevada there, which is a Las Vegas suburb is now the second biggest city in the state. And, um, it's grown to, to be a pretty sizable city itself. But, uh, as you probably noticed flying in Lake Mead is kind of disappearing. And, uh, that brings up, you know, the sort of general Southwestern drought brings up two kind of interesting threats for Vegas in the area. One is that, um, the obvious one is water. But also, I think that, you know, if the Hoover Dam declines another certain small number of feet, I don't remember what it was that I read, it's going to have to stop generating electricity, which will create all sorts of interesting, uh, difficult problems to deal with for that part of the world. Now, partly the, the water situation is um, man-made through bad management and that sort of thing that's particularly more true in California, where they send a lot of water coming down from the mountains just off into the uh, ocean in the service of various smelt and such things but um you know if vegas starts to have to rethink its its water supply issues and if the hoover dam stops generating electricity um although i guess it's not a huge part of the electricity footprint in that part of the world anymore but maybe still a significant one i'm trying to remember off the top of my head what what share it it generates um you know, these are are kind of more practical everyday um, issues related to environmental problems that are not, well, what's the temperature going to look like on average on the planet somewhere 30 years in the future? We went to the Hoover Dam. Did you go on this trip or you just been there? No, before? with
1: you. Remember? Oh, did you and
0: I go there? I, um, I've gone there a few times with various people, so um, I don't specifically remember going there with you. Did we go down into the infrastructure and all that? Did yeah, that's that. Okay, and we yeah. saw that
1: hilarious propaganda video.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. Uh, tell tell folks about that. That was that well. Was funny.
1: So I I was wildly impressed by the Hoover Dam, and I was thrilled yeah. to see it. And it's just it's a monumental achievement, and the setting it's in is is beautiful. So I, this isn't a criticism of the Hoover Dam, but there's this video that they show you before you get to go down and see the turbines and um. Transistors and all that. And uh, it's a, a flagrant New really? Deal. Not uh, transistors, think, what am I talking I about? Uh, uh, <laughs> the world's biggest t- radio. Yeah, what awesome. am I talking about? Um, it, one of them exploded recently.
0: Transformers, I think maybe. Transformers,
1: there you go. Okay. I think I didn't want to say Transformers because the Transformers movie ends up at the Hoover Dam. <laughs> so that sounds wrong. Okay. um easy transformers not transistor sorry i have had almost no sleep uh in the oh, last 48 yeah. hours anyhow there's this hilarious video there and it had some line in it that i remember both of us laughing at where you know it said the uh, the the concrete and steel backbone of the dam represented the stubborn will of the american people and then <laughs> yeah, there was a picture yeah, yeah. of franklin okay.
0: roosevelt <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's just, come
0: on oh, guys man. it's a
1: damn
0: yeah a dam. that 30s fascist stuff is uh, is is pretty wild at times so you're in vegas doing what well. you're not just there on vacation i said
1: no i am uh, speaking to southern utah university um which isn't in vegas is in cedar city utah i've been there a few times i think i've talked to you about it on the podcast yeah but this particular event is not in cedar city utah but is in Las Vegas.
0: Um, that makes it a little more so convenient, anyway.
1: It's certainly easier, although I must say, I do love that drive between Las Vegas yeah. through Arizona and into into Utah and past uh, Zion National Park. It's, it's, uh, it's an absolutely beautiful part of the country. But, yep, I spoke uh, last night. I have a couple of events today, and... Um, then I'll be back tomorrow. Well it's done. funny how your, uh, your usual climate changes your perception over time. Because I can remember coming to visit you in Las Vegas uh, as part of a, a trip to speak at Freedom Fest in maybe 2016, maybe mm. 2015. And getting off the plane from uh, Connecticut (laughs) and thinking, oh my goodness, this is so hot. I mean, just being (laughs) aware of how hot my body was and head was and everything was. But when I landed yesterday, you know, August, Las Vegas, pretty hot. I sort of got off the plane and thought, yep, this is what normal
0: temperatures feel like. (laughs) Well, probably a relief compared to Florida, at least, you know, in terms of the humidity and whatnot.
1: True. Although the humidity doesn't particularly bother me, in fact, I don't even notice it that much. What That's what weird. bothers me? Well, so it bothers me when I go to parts of Florida that aren't on the coasts. So you know, my family that came over, sense, and yeah. we went to Disney. And uh, I, I don't know how many of our listeners know this, but the hottest Disney park by quite a lot uh, is Animal Kingdom. Um, which doesn't really make much sense in the abstract because it's right next to Epcot and Magic Kingdom and uh, Hollywood Studios and everything else. But it is absolutely full everywhere of trees, plants, vegetation. I mean, it's absolutely packed because it's full of animals. It is from the minute you walk in there to the back of the park, it's just a jungle. And of course, that raises the condensation and humidity levels to extraordinary heights. And it just feels... Oh, interesting because you always hear harder. from
0: uh, you know, the, the environmentalists that if we want to lower the temperature of, say, cities, that we should have more green spaces and trees and things like that because of shading and because, I guess, concrete acts as a heat sink and that sort of thing. But you're saying in this case, they've created a an even more jungly version of Florida. Yeah, it certainly doesn't work in central Florida in a concrete
1: or asphalt park. Uh, Mm. I don't know whether it actually makes the park hotter in terms of degrees, but it certainly makes it feel hotter because (laughs) of the humidity.
0: The things you learn. Uh, Okay. Um, Yeah, we should... um, I should do a a Vegas update someday. I should uh, go out there and, and, and write a little bit more about just kind of the general development of the community and, and urban life out there, which I think is still a pretty pretty interesting story. Um, the thing about interesting stories, of course, is that you have to tell them. And weirdly enough, there are people who think that it is the job of journalists to not tell stories. So my Sunday column, uh, Awkward Transition, is going to be about this group. Uh, I think they're called Physicians for Reproductive Health or something like that. Um, I went through and looked at their list of who they are, and a lot of them have doctor in front of their name, although that could be Dr. Jill Biden, for all we know, because, you know, doctor is one of those terms that gets used promiscuously. But anyway, they have written this open letter to the uh, press, and what they're attempting to do is to pressure reporters and... uh, TV producers and and booking people and those sorts of things to essentially pretend that anti-abortion activists don't exist, to stop quoting them, stop referring to them, uh, stop asking them questions. And and literally, their petition says that the problem is asking them questions. By asking them questions, you legitimize their answers is what the uh, petition says. So we've got a group of people out there, people who almost certainly think of themselves as liberals and as civil libertarians telling journalists and reporters, especially, you must not ask people questions. That is some weird, uh, dark, Orwellian totalitarian stuff, but it's not exactly unprecedented. You know, as I argue in my column, that if there were no precedent for this, you know, they probably wouldn't bother even trying they right. wouldn't go out and tell reporters you can't interview people who are involved in the news but because there is precedent for it because we've got you know facebook and twitter acting as an arm of the biden campaign suppressing reporting from the new york post america's newspaper uh, because we have universities acting as political enforcers by rescinding admissions of students who have said dumb things, or maybe not dumb things, who knows, as uh, children in some cases, you know, when they were in high school or in in junior high, or that we've got Google and other sort of, you know, prestige employers using employment as a cudgel to enforce political conformism of various kinds. Uh, It's not as though this kind of stuff comes out of nowhere. But what I wrote in my column is that this desire to suppress is a little like having a bad pornography habit in the sense that the need becomes ever more complex and exotic and specific as time goes on. So it's not enough just to have a sort of generally biased uh, approach to certain news stories, the New York Times, Washington Post, AP, and the major networks. It becomes, well, we have to um, incorporate these ideological prerogatives into the news in a very explicit way. Example of this I gave, I came across this really perplexing story uh, in the New York Times uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago now, and it was about this woman who was now in her 80s, and she had been charged with murdering and chopping up um, another woman that she was involved with, a girlfriend, and I guess she had done this at least a couple of times before, and had served time in prison, and then had been accused in the attempted rape of an eight-year-old when she was 14 years old and i you know you don't hear a lot about a lot of 14 year old girls attempting to rape eight-year-old girls it's pretty you know uncommon crime and as you're probably guessing by this point um you know she was a dude named harvey and after getting out of prison at the age of 81 or whatever decided that he was uh, a woman and wanted to be referred to that way. So we've got all these crimes in which a man was murdering and chopping up his girlfriends and attempting to rape little girls and such things that have been completely recast uh, in retrospect by these weird, you know, political demands related to uh, trans issues. And so suddenly these dead ladies had found out they were lesbians. I didn't even know it. So th- This
1: is, as you say... A tactic that works pretty well. I mean, just think about all of the examples in recent years of activists saying to the press, we think you should instead use this word or that word or stop referring to a given movement or ideological position in the way that its advocates would.
0: Yeah.
1: And the press acquiescing.
0: Immigration. Yeah, Our language the on immigration. Sorry to interrupt, but just the dumbest version of this that that really was shocking to me at the time, although I guess it shouldn't have been, was when Bradley Manning announced that he was going to be Chelsea Manning, was going to transition all this. There were a bunch of news stories. And this wasn't, you know, National Review shaking its fingers at people saying, you know, there's no such thing as a trans person or whatever nonsense they cartoon version of our views they do. Those are just straight news stories saying there's this person who's been in the news for a while. You know him as Bradley Manning. And he's decided that he's going to transition and that he's going to be Chelsea Manning. That's all the story said. And these activists were calling for reporters and editors to be fired Mm -hmm. for using the name Bradley Manning rather than using the name Chelsea Manning in a world in which lots of people know who Bradley Manning is and no one's ever heard of Chelsea Manning. Yeah. And
1: that's that's the sort of confusion that gets in the way of reporting. Um, Some of it's silly. So, when they decide that we need to capitalize black, you refer to someone who's black is capitalized, but someone who's white, it's not. That's a conceit that has been picked up. Some of it's silly, as in pregnant people, that one they now use. But some of it's downright confusing, as with immigration. And I can't read immigration stories about individuals anymore. I can read immigration stories about policy and work out what's going on. I can read immigration stories about huge numbers of people at the border but I can't read immigration stories in major newspapers about a particular person because they keep using all of these euphemisms that make it impossible for you to understand why it was that person was in deportation hearings in the first place. Right. Yeah. They'll say, well, he was an
0: immigrant. Yeah. What sort? <laughs> what yeah. sort of immigrant? <laughs> Sidebar issue, or just migrant, uh, which is a good one too. Sidebar issue here, by the way. Um, capitalizing black, I sort of get why people uh, want to do that. But, you know, for years I've been having this argument and people actually seem to kind of understand it, that terms like Latino and Hispanic are pretty useless because, you know, people from Northern Mexico and people from Guatemala don't necessarily have a lot in common with one another. Uh, people from Brazil get counted as Hispanic, even though they're you know, Portuguese speaking people, or I guess Latino, um, are, you know, culturally, politically, often economically very different, especially when we're talking about those immigrant communities in the United States. You know, people of Cuban and Venezuelan background are very different sorts of people from people of, uh, you know, who are immigrants from El Salvador. And you see sometimes the media get confused by this because they'll say, well, Trump did really well in Texas border counties in spite of his attitudes about uh, illegal immigration. Well, have you ever asked a Mexican-American rancher about Guatemalan illegals coming across the border and showing up in downtown San Antonio? They aren't happy about it for the most part. You know, they're not, oh, you're from a Spanish-speaking background, too. We're brothers now. Uh, That's just kind of not how it happens. Now, for a long time, Black made a lot of sense as an an identifier in the United States. You kind of knew who you were talking about. But because we now are experiencing and seeing, you know, a lot more diversity in the group of people in this country who are Black or people of African origin, that I'm starting to think maybe that's going to head the same way as Latino. In the sense that, you know, families of people who have been here for hundreds of years, who are mostly of slave backgrounds, are not necessarily culturally, historically, politically, economically, very much like people who are uh, recent immigrants from Nigeria who have PhDs and work in Silicon Valley. And as those communities become more prominent, particularly, you know, recent African immigrants, uh, Caribbean immigrants, things like that. Um, just sort of using the term black to refer to all these people, I think, is going to end up being more confusing and more um, obscuring than it is illuminating. But that's completely a sidebar issue. Well, and, and it gives me an
1: opportunity for an awkward segue, which is speaking of slavery, your wow. point about abortion <laughs> actually reminded me of the historical use of that instinct to silence questions which in the early republic was largely to make abolitions, abolitionists be quiet. And I know people get really upset when you point out that there are a lot of historical analogies between the abolitionist movement and the anti-abortion movement, but that, I'm afraid, is another one of them.
0: Well, there are lots, uh, some, that's, a, that's a dumb complaint that always irritates me because the whole idea of an analogy is that these are things that are not the same thing, that they are different important ways. That's why they're analogies and not the same thing.
1: But it is a good analogy in yeah, a lot of a ways. Analogy. And I think this is another one because you know if you go back to the early republic, um, the, the first fight over speech and especially gag rules in Congress uh, had to do with abolitionism. Yeah. Uh, institutions that were set up to fight slavery were deemed to be dangerous. The argument's very similar. The idea is that if you... As you know a, a newspaper man or an evangelical Christian form a group, the purpose of which is manumission. You are potentially damaging the social fabric. You are inciting people. you are yeah. uh, marginalizing a, a political group, and in that case, <laughs> Southerners. Yeah.
0: well you know that was an issue in the early days of the Republican party. Which was set up to be an anti-slavery party, but it wasn't an abolitionist party. In fact, you know the role of of sort of radical abolitionists in the Republican Party was was a pretty controversial one within the party. You know, generally Republicans were interested in containing slavery. They had the Abraham Lincoln view of you know we keep it geographically where it is and it'll eventually mm-hmm. die out under the weight of its own economic idiocy. But um, yeah, that's just kind of an interesting aspect of that story. But I just think with abortion, it is really
1: telling just how much of The argument in favor of it and of its legal protection relies upon either silencing opponents, casting their institutions, crisis pregnancy centers now is a good example of it, as uh, being untoward or using euphemisms. I I will never forget being in a meeting um, for the promotion of my book, in which I had a chapter on abortion that largely discussed the way in which Uh, Pro-choice advocates use euphemisms when discussing the issue in a way that pro-life advocates do not. Uh, And, for example, pro-Second Amendment advocates do not. Pro-Second Amendment advocates do not invent other words for gun or death. (laughs) They don't pretend guns aren't dangerous, by and large. Um, And I sat there in this meeting, and we had to agree on various PR lines and what was the ad going to say and what was the promotion for this speech going to say and so on and this well-meaning lady who was clearly not remotely <laughs> on my side on anything said while well, throughout this chapter you've used the word um, abortion i was wondering if you'd consider using reproductive justice and i said well the whole point of the chapter is to point out that that's exactly what <laughs> makes the abortion argument difficult to follow <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> is, is that we aren't calling things by their, by their proper names, but um, it, it was yeah. so a minor, ingrained.
0: A, a minor point of my Sunday column, by the way, is the way in which, you know, sort of people are distributed into institutions, according to these views. So, you know, you can be uh, a pro-life person at the New York times. If you're Ross Douthat, and you're writing for the op-ed page, but, I guarantee you, I'll bet you all the money in my bank account that, you know, no one who holds a title along the lines of managing editor um, has the views of Zanda Sanctus on on any of these issues. And the reason that's interesting is because, you know, even you, a conservative guy writing a conservative libertarian book uh, are going to have to deal with essentially these, you know, publishing industry uh, lefties to get your book out. And I was thinking about when I wrote about abortion for the uh, Washington Post, which is a fine experience. I didn't have any trouble with the editors there. They were very nice and they did a great job. But my editor on that column was Ruth Marcus, who has extreme pro-abortion views. Yeah, kill all which the Down syndrome kids. Right, which is, which is is fine, but it's impossible to imagine the opposite being the case right. of someone who you know has her views writing a column about abortion for the Washington Post and being edited by someone who has my views. Well, you know, we, and that's we, where we should they be careful. We should be careful. Yeah, we should be careful not to let this descend
1: into Charles Cook hates the media. But Alexander DeSantis (laughs) and I actually joke about this a great deal whenever we talk, that the way the New York Times approaches certain conservative topics is so one-sided that, you know, Charles Blow will write his column and he'll say, all white women are terrorists. You think I'm joking about that? Google those words. Yeah, I I I know. And it gets published. But Alexandra will write a piece saying, I don't think that Roe v. Wade was correctly decided. It should be returned to the 50 states. And they'll ask for a citation that there are 50 states. I mean, they just tie you up. (laughs) it's, It's not that they won't eventually publish it. They will. And I should say, with my book, I had a great experience with everyone who commissioned it, with all of the editors, everyone. It was just this one meeting. And she was fine. She was nice. She didn't push it or anything. She just made a polite request that I thought was indicative of something else. But they do put you through the ringer in major newspapers because the people who are reading it, as you say, in the editorial side are sort of horrified and astonished that this could possibly be claimed...
0: Yeah, and it's great to watch these you know, sort of New York-based publishing companies kind of twist in discomfort because right-wing books make them so much money. Yeah, <laughs> you know, people like Mark Levin sell truckloads of books, um, you know, literal tons of books. And um, you know, the best-selling book of poetry, probably in the last twenty years in American history, I bet sold ten thousand copies, uh, if that. So uh, I think we wanted to talk about. We'll maybe transition to you. Um, One other aspect of this story that always I find kind of annoying, this petition I was mentioning says, these are medical and scientific questions, which are not matters of debate or opinion. There's no such thing essentially as a medical opinion. Well, that's not true really, guys, because I'm pretty sure I've heard doctors say a million times in my professional medical opinion, this is the case, but you may want to get a second opinion. Everyone knows that, um, Debate and opinion and argument are fundamental both to the scientific process and to the medical process, but there's a tendency to want to pretend that matters of political dispute, whether it's, you know, economic, moral, ethical, legal, are in fact scientific questions that can be answered in some dispositive way by the implementation scientific method, which just isn't really the case. And we've seen that come up with the issue of crisis pregnancy centers, which, um, Offer various kinds of counseling and services and things often that are alternatives to abortion. And this is treated as being somehow medical malpractice, even when it's not really, strictly speaking, a medical question. Yeah, there's a good example of this this morning in Axios,
1: um, which uh, ran a piece uh, on crisis pregnancy centers uh, and described them. Uh, I'm just going to get this up on my screen so that I don't uh, misquote them, here we are, describe them as violating principles of medical ethics. Now, first off, this is preceded by health experts say. All of them, all of the health experts (laughs) believe that crisis pregnancy centres violate principles of medical ethics. Uh, Which principles and which ethics? that is a ridiculous statement this is a matter of profound debate and i personally find it particularly annoying the tendency you just described to say this isn't a matter of medical opinion given that when it comes to medical facts pro-lifers are actually on more solid ground than pro choices on average that doesn't mean that they're right politically or ethically those questions are extremely difficult to tease out uh, in a Pluralist Republic, but the idea that you know pro-lifers are running around selling quack medicine is just absolutely bizarre if you listen to pro choice activists talk for five minutes. But these these centers, they violate principles of medical ethics. I, I just I mean, first of, the first thing that came to my mind to be honest with you was what, as opposed to mass murdering children? Yes. Uh, but that is a classic example of begging the question. Only if you believe all of the presumptions that the pro-choices sell, one of which is abortion is medical care. Another is the unborn child is not alive. (laughs) I'm sure. Sure. If you buy that uh, and then you have a center that says we will help you look after your child, please don't get an abortion because it's killing. Well, you've got a problem. But half the country doesn't buy that.
0: Yeah, and the dumb thing about that is it's uh, you know, it's always a game of Calvin Ball, right? So it's, well, we're the science and evidence-based people. And you say, well, okay, well, this is a living human organism at the earliest stage of development, and therefore it shouldn't be killed. Well, it's not a person. So it's the retreat into metaphysics, you know. It's, it doesn't meet legal personhood. Well, I know it doesn't mean legal personhood in a lot of jurisdictions. We mean to change the law because we think the law should be different from what it is. And sometimes you know you get this argument that, well, the law says what it is, and therefore that's an argument for the law saying what it is well again not to uh, harp on slavery
1: (laughs) but one of the arguments that people make against the constitution in in the modern eras of 1619 project type progressives but back in the early days say Lysander Spooner was that the document did not treat slaves it's not blacks that irritates me there's this misconception that the constitution said that Blacks were three-fifths of a person. Not right. Slaves were. And, of course, the slaves were mostly black. that That's the sin. It wasn't racial uh, intrinsically. The Constitution said we don't treat slaves as full people. That's the argument. I, let's not go into the fact that the three-fifths clause was actually arguably a win for <laughs> abolitionists in the long run. Right. Yeah. You could do the same thing. I mean, you could point to that and say, well, that's not how we treat legal personhood then. And they would say, quite rightly, as the abolitionists did, and that's why we needed to amend it. Because yes. we think that that was uh, an ugly compromise based on a large proportion of the people involved insisting that slaves were subhuman, which was a position they became more fond of, not less, unfortunately, into the 1840s and 50s. So
0: I love, it's, by it's the just way, sal- yeah. silly. I love Lysander Spooner and the essay you're talking about the Constitution, No Authority. And um, but one of the things I like about Spooner is that if I take my own particular crackpot libertarian tendencies and like push them all the way where they would go, Lysander Spooner kind of shows me where I end up. You know, I think he's kind of a fun writer, an interesting guy in lots of ways, but he's also a good cautionary example of um, how easy it is to become a crackpot. And uh, one must always be on guard against crack pottery. Yeah, I have
1: a sort of uh, theory of any successful movement uh, that, that it requires people across the spectrum. And I think sometimes we, we're very keen to make everyone involved in a given push look like us. You know, so with Brexit, for example, there were the people who loved Dan Hanna. Yeah. And then there were the people who loved Nigel Farage. And the people who loved Dan Hannan said, not without reason, you know, Nigel Farage is a bit of a bomb thrower. He's not always truthful. He's uh, <laughs> too effusive. And the people who liked Nigel Farage said, well, Dan Hannan's very eloquent and all, but he doesn't appeal to the average guy down a pub. Also true. Truth in that too. Uh, but I think Brexit succeeded because both of them were involved. I don't think he could have succeeded without both of them being involved. And I think the same of abolition. I'm sure you agree with me, but you know, I'm glad Lysander Spooner was there. I just think it was prudent of Abraham Lincoln to say, not going to take that view. <laughs> but you did need those people in the mix.
0: Yeah, I've kind of toyed around with the idea of writing a book about Tucker and Spooner. This is sort of interesting characters, but i got a lot of books to write on the list and that's not really at the top of it. How long will you be in Las Vegas, Charlie?
1: Until tomorrow morning. Okay.
0: So you've got a Friday night in Vegas. Well, um, I hope you survive it.
1: Yeah. Given that yesterday I was awake for 22 and a half hours, um, I think I will survive it asleep. Uh, uh, Well,
0: there's great Vegas hotels with the blackout curtains. It's a good place to sleep. You turn the air conditioning down to about 61 degrees and pull those curtains up. You can sleep for 20 hours in those places. Exactly. You know, something we missed about Las Vegas, maybe you
1: said it, but is restaurants.
0: Yeah, great restaurants and
1: stuff. Really great restaurants. That That's the big change from when I first came here you 20 and I years ago. You had
0: I recall. Oh, my gosh.
1: That was one of the best meals I've ever had. And I just love that place, the way it's done yeah. out. The wine was good. That was a great place. Awfully good.
0: Awfully good. Um, any other place you like in Vegas?
1: No, you know, I need to bring my wife here. Um, and, uh, you know park the kids with the grandparents and mm. uh, maybe books a couple of shows and some restaurants, maybe try and coincide with a, an NFL game. Cause that's another thing. Uh, Las Vegas has now as an NFL team, the Raiders moved here. They've got their great new stadium. Yeah.
0: So I never thinking about that at the time. I was, I was always just, I'm not a huge sports guy, as you know, although I do occasionally like to, I've, well, I've been to one NFL game and it was a lot of fun. Um, I like the idea of it. I would I would go to more if I had more time, I suppose. But it always irritated me that you know Vegas couldn't get an NFL team. It's such an obvious fit uh, for the city, and um, of course the reason for it, as you probably know, is that the NFL traditionally was just so terrified of being associated, even at a thousand yards, with gambling that um, they just would not let a franchise go to Vegas for the longest time until it became sort of a more normal city that also has a gambling industry. But um, I imagine that would be a super fun place to, uh, to do that.
1: Yeah, this is this is now on my list. I'm going to start mentally organizing this.
0: Yeah, I think you should. I think you should. All righty. Well, uh, enjoy Vegas. Oh, you know, one last thing about Vegas, by the way. Uh, I always mentioned that it was a super convenient place to live, and it is, because one of the nice things about Vegas is that tourists who go there to lose money sort of subsidize a lot of mm-hmm. infrastructure for people who live there, including a very, very good airport. And um, it's nice that, you know, you've got sort of direct flights to everywhere in the country, often at very convenient hours for someone like me, if you travel a lot for work, which I do. But I remember saying that um, the downside of that is that if you fly into Las Vegas after about seven o'clock in the evening on any given night, you're going to be (laughs) a plane full of drunk people singing Don't Stop Believing. And that gets to be less fun, I think, about after the 30th time. Just before you
1: go, I have to tell you this. Mm-hmm. In 2015, I flew to Las Vegas, and my plane sat on the tarmac before we left JFK for five mm-hmm. hours. Oh dear! So what is that? A five-hour flight, maybe plus five hours on the tarmac, so and I was in a
0: row. They, and they drank that plane dry. I'm sure.
1: Well, yes, and I was at the window seat in the far left, about halfway down the plane, and there were five to my right women on. A bachelorette party. Oh, and they started drinking the minute they got on the plane. They drank all five hours we were on the tarmac, and they drank all five hours we were in the air. <laughs> and they well, were the... so
0: loud. Oh, God, yeah. So annoying. <laughs> so so boisterous. Well, here's an unsolicited advertisement, by the way, for National Review cruises. Um, in 2012, I want to say it was, the post-election cruise... Um, the legend is, and I believe that this is true, that the cruise ship had to make an unscheduled uh alcohol resupply. Because after the twenty twelve election, uh right wingers who were throwing their passports off the ship uh, were so so despairing that we apparently drank a cruise ship dry. I believe that's had, true. Had to get it restocked. <laughs> yeah. So um so something to think about, folks, if you're if you're looking to come on a national review cruise, they can be uh, they can get a little out of hand. All right. Well,
1: I will leave you to your Friday and you will leave me to my non-raucous Friday night. All right. Enjoy it.